This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at storageunpacked.com. This is Chris Evans with a Storage Unpacked podcast. I'm here today with Matt Hamilton. Matt, good to meet you. Hi, good to meet you too, Chris. So we're going to talk about Filecoin, but you actually you work for the company behind Filecoin, don't you? So uh, would you want to just take a second to introduce yourself and uh, tell tell us what you do? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm Matt Hamilton. I'm a developer advocate at Protocol Labs. Protocol Labs is the company behind Filecoin and also some other technologies as well, IPFS that some people might have heard of, which is the interplanetary file system, and also some other technologies as well, peer-to-peer um, and a few others as well that are used kind of by other software to do with kind of networking and uh, underlying plumbing of, uh, of decentralized systems. Interplanetary file system. What a great name. I love it. it we'll is. get onto what that means in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. We'll get onto that because it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Great name. Okay. So we're going to talk about decentralized storage because effectively that's what Filecoin offers. Yeah. So in a, in a nutshell, in a, if you're in a lift explaining this to somebody and you've got, you know, two floors to do it, 10 floors to do it, how would you describe what Filecoin is and what it does? Yeah, Filecoin is a decentralized storage network. Uh, current storage capacity is something in the region of about 15 exabytes of data. So that's about 1% of the total data center storage capacity worldwide at the moment. And Filecoin uses a crypto economic model to incentivize storage providers to provide storage to the network. So there's a token, a, a cryptographic token, a currency called also called Filecoin or Phil and that is used to pay for services on the network. And what is pretty unique with Filecoin is that it uses a blockchain to actually prove cryptographically that data has been stored and replicated and is available and is continually being stored. So you can you can be assured that, you know, once a storage provider is storing your data, you can be assured that it's still there and uh, that they are actually storing it. Okay, we'll come into that sort of detail in a second. That's a great introduction. Now. I just would just you know like to talk a bit more about the whole decentralized storage idea first of all because initially you think great idea imagine all these spare hard drives people have got imagine people who've bought up racks and racks of stuff and done things like cheer in the past you know we've seen a number of other vendors have done i guess similar things and it seems like a great idea that distributing this volume of data around the world in places that maybe has cheap energy or for whatever whatever reason it happens to be seems like a good idea but technically it's actually really challenging because you've got security aspects to this because it's not your data you could be storing you could store it for other people you know there's replication resiliency drives go offline they crash systems crash people get bored there's a lot of things to manage behind the scenes on this to get this right, isn't there? Yeah, there certainly there certainly is. It's not a not a, not a simple task, but yeah, that's you know one one of the things to kind of you know set the scene a little bit here is I mean you mentioned some of the other sort of blockchains and decentralized storage systems there, and just to set the scene with Filecoin, it's not really something that as a storage provider you'd set up with a couple of spare hard drives in your in your closet at home. The storage providers, there's about 4,000 of them currently on the network. They are, you know, professional data centers full of, uh, I would say, spinning disks, but it's not going to be spinning disks nowadays, but, you know, storage, you know, capacity there. Uh, so these are, you know, like I said, large scale, that scale of storage is distributed over only about 4,000 storage providers worldwide. So each one is providing a fairly large amount of storage capacity. I think that's quite an interesting 
point to just re-emphasize now i was being slightly facetious by suggesting that all of us who've got spare hard drives with you know a couple of terabytes sitting here that we're not using could could be joining in but i think that's really important because i think when people look at this they might be very concerned about the security aspects the resiliency aspects but to know that the majority is backed by such a small number of potentially very large supplies of resource here actually changes the way you perhaps might view the the, the platform the technology Exactly. And it's, you know, yes, you might have been, you know, being facetious there, but it's a very valid point. And a lot of people do have, you know, sometimes a, uh, you know, misconception as to what the Filecoin network is and kind of the, the scale and the capacity that it is that is storing. And as you say, some people have concerns about, you know, where the data is being stored and how it's being stored and, you know, whether it's being stored. You know, etc. Well, one of the nice things with the Filecoin network is it allows you to store multiple replicas of the data with different storage providers very easily. And it uses a, a cryptographic process to prove that the data is being stored so that you know the storage providers have to uh, every day prove they run a, a consensus algorithm called proof of space time that they have to actually prove uh, that they have the data. And if they can no longer prove that they've got the data, then they actually start to lose out financially because storage providers have to actually put some collateral up to become a storage provider. Again, in the in terms of the uh, token fill, the, the cryptocurrency fill that's used. So, you know, there's a lot there that actually gives you, in many ways, I think a lot more visibility um, and, and assurance of the data integrity than you might have with some centralized storage providers. Right? When your data is stored there, you don't really know what replication is going on. You don't really know whether they've still got your your, your data there um, and, and can they retrieve it and bring it back to you. With the case of Filecoin, there is cryptographic proof that the data is being stored. Okay, great. So let's dig, dig into that in a, deep, a bit more detail then because you sort of mentioned a couple of times currency, fill, and so on. And you know, backing this, people might be thinking, oh, okay, crypto, maybe they think there's a currency angle to it and cryptocurrency angle to it. But actually, that's your methodology of, I guess, establishing people's participation within the network in terms of a storage capacity that they're offering and so on. So explain to us how that sort of that side of it works. Sure. So as I mentioned, if you're a storage provider, and, and you have storage capacity that you're offering to the network, then you have to put up some collateral in, in the terms of the Filecoin token, the fill token. So that is kind of your skin in the game, so to speak, there. And if you are a storage client and you want to store data on the network, then similarly, you pay for that in that token fill. And what happens is the uh, storage provider puts up a um, some collateral, the client puts up the fee that they're paying for the storage deal, and that gets effectively put in, in a cryptographic escrow and then released over the lifetime of the storage deal. So the storage deals can can vary in length, but typically, you know, the, the space of say one one or two years. And so what can what would happen is I, as say a storage client, would negotiate with you as a storage provider that I want to store, you know, thirty gigabytes of data for two years, and we both put up the collateral for that. Then I send the data over to you. You store it. You have to provide originally what's called a proof of replication. And that proves that the, the data has actually been stored on the network. And then every day, this proof of space time proof that is that is effectively done by the software running on your node. It's not something that you're doing you know, manually. And uh, that is 
posted to the blockchain. And the blockchain is basically the accounting system for this. So the data storage itself is not happening on a blockchain. And that's, again, another one of the misconceptions that some people might have. And when you, when you think about the scale of the storage capacity, um, you know, exabytes of data, that's not going to be stored on a blockchain because blockchains typically, you know, have a shared state and everybody has to then have that data, which makes that very, you know, very unmanageable and uh, not very efficient. Yeah, it sounds to me like what you're, you're, you're telling us here, blockchain is basically the audit trail, the tracking mechanism, and the, the space-time algorithm is the validation piece that says we've got an audit that your system is still healthy, it's still delivering to the customer what they expect, and basically you're tying the two up so that you've got an ongoing audit log trail of the fact that this data has been securely stored and you can, you can demonstrate that, and then that can't be altered at that point because it's now on the blockchain. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. So the blockchain is used as the verification layer. And that's what's interesting with this is it's not just decentralized storage, it's not just storage, but it's verifiable storage as well. So you can actually verify that what has been stored is exactly what you get back. You know, what you get back is exactly what you stored rather. And is that requiring the customer therefore to implement their own security controls are they going to have to put their own encryption in place does that come as part of the way the system is designed because clearly you know that security at that level encryption at rest and and flight across the, any sort of network is going to be pretty critical to people yeah so by default filecoin is a public network so data put on there is publicly uh, visible to to anybody. So any kind of encryption, that, like you said, most people want to be done will be implemented at a layer above that. And there's a whole series of companies that are building different solutions on top of Filecoin as well that provide various different offerings depending upon what people want. And another another thing to point out is the way the Filecoin network is designed, the storage providers are looking to be storing you know, data in the in the kind of region, they work on 32 gigabyte or sometimes 64 gigabyte sector sizes. So they're looking to take storage deals of that order of magnitude. So, you know, if, if you rock up with a, you know, 100 kilobyte, you know, whatever Word document or something like that, they're not going to want to store that in and of itself. So there's a whole marketplace out there now for what are called storage aggregators or storage helpers that can take that data, aggregate it, store it, and then again, provide you with the cryptographic receipt that that data has indeed been stored. And the nice thing being is if those storage providers themselves, uh, the um, storage aggregators themselves, for whatever reason, disappear, you know, the data is still stored on the Filecoin blockchain. So you, because you have the receipt, you can go back to retrieve that irrespective. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I had no idea was whether people would be storing hundreds of terabytes gigabytes, kilobytes in this, you know, in terms of a front-end connectivity. So it's good to understand that it could be as low as gigabytes, but potentially people are, are storing a lot higher. It sounds to me like, for instance, somebody could be uh, on the front end of this and act as, say, an object storage or a file storage provider in the form of somebody who manages, the, you know, the CDN side of that front-end network, the security and all those other controls, but then it's backed off to your technology in order to store it. It sounds like people could actually become, I guess we could have um, service providers who already do other services. So for, for example, service providers who already do compute services in a data center like an MSPs and, and so on. They could add this to their roster of, of features and just be a provider to their own customers. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, one of the ways to think about the sort of the base layer of Filecoin is think of it more like archival cold storage, right? 
Um, it's Amazon Glacier, not Amazon S3, right? But then built on top of that, there are a number of uh, providers and companies building additional services. So yes, you could have somebody that provides something like an S3 or cloud object storage or whatever, you know, type API, compatible API on top, that then backs off to uh, Filecoin in, in, in the background and either uses, you know, Filecoin for sort of warm or cold storage, you know, behind that. Okay, brilliant. So let's just talk about the proofs here because we've, we had we had a discussion about Cheer a few years ago where we looked at that and we had a podcast about that. And sometimes I think the concept of the proofs can be, I think, a little challenging for people to understand what's actually being achieved here. Now, I looked at, uh, through your documentation, I could see three pieces. The one we've already mentioned already, the, this proof of space time, which seems to me to be like an ongoing audit log. Um, then the proof of capacity and proof, proof of replication. So why don't you take us through what, what t those two components actually mean? Yeah, so the, the, the proof of replication is performed once when the data is received by the storage provider. They, they go through a process called sealing, in which they take the sector. There is a cryptographic process that's executed over that sector. It takes you know, a number of hours, typically, for, for that process to kind of go through. And as a result of that, they then come back with this proof of replication. And that is posted to the blockchain to prove that they have a you know unique copy that they are storing of the data there then proof of space time as i mentioned is the ongoing one that they prove you know continually that they have the data and then the, the proof of capacity is with regards to like proving the, the the capacity they are putting on the network often referred to the network power as well because the the way the decentralized you know consensus mechanism works so you many people might be familiar with say uh, bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, and it's using compute power and to provide effectively a, you know, like an, uh, an unforgeable kind of uh, scarce resource, you know, energy that's going into CPUs and GPUs and ASICs in order to provide, you know, uh, the, the consensus mechanism to underpin the consensus mechanism. Whereas Filecoin is using the storage capacity. And what makes Filecoin pretty unique is it's the only blockchain out there that actually leaves the underlying resource that is being used for the consensus mechanism still available for its original intended use, which is data storage, right? If you think Bitcoin right. is up effectively, you know, wasting the, the, the energy is no longer usable for, for any other source um, and other proof of space time you know, systems often use random data instead. You know, Filecoin is the, is the one that actually truly makes that capacity available for useful work. Okay, excellent. So if, if I was um, thinking about this in terms of say, you know, how a, a storage platform would work, you, a lot of the things you've said to me there, I think are quite, quite good for me, I'm feeling quite confident here. So I'm hearing things like, you know, there's guarantees around validating my data and doing checksums and calculations There's validation of when I've written something, I've got a confirmation back that what got written was actually what got written. There's even the proof of capacity, which sounds a bit to me like, have I got the ability to store this data on your behalf? Yes, I have. I've got this capacity available. So all of these things sound very, very storage-like, which is pretty good. Um, so in terms of how this exists as a continuum, and and I use the word continuum in the sense that it sounds like because you have many, many potential storage providers, they could come into the market, they could have new capacity, perhaps when they have, say, I'm, I'm 
making this up because I don't know the answer to it, but, you know, imagine they're refreshing their technology and they have to take stuff out or something dies or crashes and is irretrievable. There must be a degree of dynamicism. Dynamicism, is that really a word? Dynamic nature to the to the process of storage being added and removed from the continuum that is the entire system. So how does that change over time? How does pricing change over time? And, you know, how is that affected as more people come in? Because you're creating quite a market here that potentially people could come in and try and bid cheap, cheaper and cheaper, and, and maybe that's the intention. Well, yeah, I mean, to some degree, that is the intention. I mean, the, the storage on, uh, on Filecoin is something in the order of magnitude about 4,000 times cheaper than, say, storing on AWS. So there is an element there. And what, what is nice is, I mean, you kind of alluded to this about storage providers kind of coming and, and going to the network, adding capacity, et cetera. A storage provider doesn't need effectively a front-end business to attract customers, right? They join the network, bring their capacity, and the network in and of itself is effectively their marketing department, so to speak, right? Uh, they don't need yeah. you know, to go out to actually find storage deals. I mean, they, they can do. I mean, one of the unique things is that as a storage client, it is entirely kind of up to you which storage providers your data is stored on. So you could choose, okay, I want to store this within a GDPR compliant regulation. So I'm going to, you know, pick a, a storage provider in, in Germany to store it in, and you know, one in one in France or Portugal or something like that, right? And you can then, you know, say, okay, I've got three replications there in different locations, but they're all within, you know, the jurisdiction, the regulatory jurisdiction that that I, I require. So you do have quite a bit of control over that. And similarly, the storage providers have the ability to set the price. So it's up to them as to what price they want to charge to store data. And they may have a good reason for having whatever price that they they set. But ultimately, it is a marketplace, right? So if there's a storage provider offering a similar kind of, you know, uh, storage capacity, similar kind of, you know, criteria at a cheaper price, then you're probably going to go for that. So, you know, that is from an end user point of view, that's that's pretty good because it does allow you to have you know the power of the marketplace rather than one kind of dominant centralized player setting the fees there uh, so that you know that is certainly i think helpful for you know end end clients i think it's interesting because it sort of makes me think that uh, i i did a um i wrote a blog post a few years ago where i was looking at the the reduction in hard drive price um as the capacities were increasing and trying to draw a comparison to how amazon or AWS was reducing their prices on S3. And to a certain extent, you started to see that reduction in price. Then it hit a point where the price didn't reduce any further, but they transitioned into offering cheaper services. So they were clearly archiving storage out onto, might be tape, we didn't, you know, they, they don't tell us that. But things like Glacier and all those other services were clearly new tiers of storage they were presenting rather than actually just selling what they had at a cheaper price. Now, as you said you can't control that you know you've got just to go with whatever they're charging and your only way of saving money is to tear down whereas in your scenario your potential is that you may be able to find a cheaper provider if somebody is out there who you can trust and in your sort of confident in that reliability with yeah and it's kind of almost approaching the the issue from the opposite direction right is that you've got a base storage layer there and then you can build on top of that or companies startups whatever can build on top of that and build additional value-added services. So for example, I mentioned encryption. So you can have a, a service that, that will 
you know, manage encryption for you before storing the data or negotiate the storage deals, for example, or, or whatever it might be. And they can then, you know, in, in turn charge a, a, a price for the value that they're adding on top of that. But the idea being is that ultimately it's stored on the Filecoin network, which is giving you kind of, you know, very uh, economical storage, you know, in a decentralized manner. So you, you mentioned providers then. So, we, you know, I think we've got our head around the fact that there's a, a layer of providers here that are providing the capacity, but we need that next layer up that says, well, how on earth do I get in and out of the system? And you sort of alluded to that to a degree. So I guess we have storage providers who, who are delivering raw capacity, but then there's that other layer that are providing a degree of maybe caching or some other technique to yep. improve performance. Is that it? I mean, from that point out, uh, onwards, is there an, an, an API or an SDK that exposes the, uh, the system to the end user? Yeah, so there's there's various levels. So there's a, a an API that you can use directly to you know access and you know transact directly with the base blockchain without needing any third party or any middleman or anything like that. So you can directly do that um, if you want. Then there's the like the storage aggregators and storage helpers that will will help you if you want to store just a small amount of data that might aggregate that with other data before storing it. There are uh, CDNs. So there's a CDN called Saturn that Protocol Labs are working on. And Saturn is a, uh, a system to allow, you know, faster retrieval of data and have, you know, sort of hot data uh, that can be retrieved from the network in tens or hundreds of milliseconds rather than, you know, significantly higher latencies. So those kind of levels are, are being built on at the moment. And one of the, the key pieces that's coming in very soon is FEM, the Filecoin Virtual Machine. And that's the area specifically I'm working on. And that allows you to now implement smart contracts on top of the Filecoin blockchain. So again, the Filecoin blockchain is responsible for all of the, the proofs and the, the kind of the marketplace. And now you can start building decentralized uh, logic on top of that as well. So for example, you could build a system that does perpetual storage and will automatically renew a storage deal when it comes up to its, its end of time without needing you know, human intervention. You can have things like data DAOs where you can have a number of parties all collectively fund the storage of some data. So it might be, for example, some scientific data and you have a number of funding bodies or individual parties that, that want to effectively sponsor that. Um, they could all come together to fund that collectively and that could all be managed using uh, the Filecoin virtual machine. And what's really cool is the, the first implementation of that, the FEVM, the Filecoin Ethereum virtual machine, uses the same programming language solidity as Ethereum, and uses the same Ethereum uh, virtual machine bytecode, EVM bytecode. So if people are uh, used to creating smart contracts on Ethereum, they can actually now create those, deploy those same smart contracts to Filecoin and now directly build you know, programmable logic on top of that, those storage capacities. So this is really fascinating because it sounds like, you know, we, we, we need to sort of, in our, I guess, in the way we deliver our storage systems, separate the, the metadata from the data for want of a better way to describe it. We, we have a lot of data out there, but actually where we store it and how we store it is actually always a conundrum. So, you know, should we put this on this platform? Should this be stored here? And when we want to move it around, you know, cost-wise becomes prohibitive sometimes because of egress charges and all the rest of it. So I think data tends to be quite static. 
But having something that's a, a virtual machine in the background saying, well, actually, you know, here's an opportunity to take this contract, move this around. And then if you've got the ability to even sell contracts because you've decided we d you don't want to use that anymore and you, know, in, and you have a secondary marketplace for contracts, you could potentially sell those off and you could optimize your resources pretty, I think, pretty cleverly if you, if you really sit down and think about some of the, you know, the ways you could make this work. Exactly. And so, you know, what FEM allows is it allows you to access the, the information on the blockchain. So the state information and the metadata about the data. So, you know, what is stored where and when, for how long, for how much price. So that allows you to build um, these kind of like a, a rich kind of series of sort of marketplace type systems on top of that as well. So the actual, but then accessing the actual data itself, you kind of alluded to, you know, as a phrase that, you know, data has gravity, right? And so, you know, if you've got petabytes of data, you don't want to pull that into your compute nodes to process it. You know, ideally, you'd send your compute job out to the data. And there's a, a related but separate project uh, within Protocol Labs called Bakiao. And Bakiao is part of the compute over data project within Protocol Labs. And that allows you to run compute jobs over data that is stored on these decentralized networks. So you can have something like a machine learning model and you have all your training data stored on the network and you actually send the training job out to the data rather than bring the data into the training job. And that can actually work quite well because if you think a lot of these storage providers, they've got all the storage capacity, but uh, much of their compute capacity that sits next to it is possibly sitting idle, right? So they can, uh, they can make use of that and that gives them an additional, potentially additional revenue stream that could be built on top of that as well. That, that bit's not quite there with, with Bakiao in terms of revenue streams, but when you combine Bakiao and FEM, then you get a pretty, pretty powerful combination potentially with that. You've got a decentralized way of running compute jobs and you've got a decentralized way of, of managing the state, the compute, uh, sorry, the, um, the, the verifiability of that and things like payment for it as well. So we've, got, we've slightly gone off on a tangent, actually, to an area <laughs> I didn't think we were even going to discuss. But it, this is really, you know, quite a, a quite, an, a, I think, a really important uh, topic, because ultimately, the mass storage of data in something that just distributes it across lots of hard drives sitting in my cupboard, which, you know, we're not doing, of course, we, we were joking about at the very beginning. But actually, the on a serious note, you know, this idea that we're distributing data to sit on a on a system that potentially could be a cold archive isn't massively exciting because, you know, you could say to people, you could put it on tape, you could put it on lots of places that could be relatively cheap, especially if you're not going to touch it for a long time. To think that we've now got the ability to say, well, actually, I can dynamically place this on the cheapest place possible. Plus, I can now move the, some compute there and I could even somehow perhaps mirror the two. So now not only does my broker come to me and say, I can give you this storage capacity, but also I've got this compute capacity, which offers these functions, these GPUs, this, that and the other for this sort of price. So if you store it on me, I'll get, I can give it you this at, at a cheaper cost. And maybe the storage is a bit more expensive, but you're, you're looking at it going, actually, hmm, I could actually use some computer that's much cheaper than it would be elsewhere. So now you've got a much more complex thought process to go through and that your, your virtual machine is going to give you that ability to then, I guess, balance that out. So there's a really interesting discussion here around, you know, that whole optimization of mass yeah. compute. Yeah. And when you bring, you know, egress, you mentioned about egress charges, right? Um, and that's one of the ones that often you know, kind of kills a lot of these sort of ideas, right? It's, it all sounds great until you try and get your data out and then you get stung with, with egress charges, which if you're trying to do, you know, compute and you're trying to fetch that data to run compute over it, then that can 
you know be significant so you know unless the compute is you know in the same location as as the uh, as the storage and so within you know filecoin that becomes you know much more a reality now th there is actually i mean you, you know again going back to this hard drives in in closets there is a, a space for that because again like i said sort of building on this there are things like saturn which is a cdn and Saturn, you can be a node on Saturn for as, as little as I think one terabyte is where the uh, storage requirements start. So that's within the realms of a desktop or, or something, you know, sat in your cupboard in which you could be part of effectively the edge CDN distributing data and acting effectively as a cache to the network. And again, that is all incentivized via the Filecoin token, the fill token. So if your uh, CDN node is is placed in such a location that it has a lot of traffic, then um, you know you can generate revenue via that route as well. For example, I guess if you you know you were in somewhere like Barbados and you needed a cupboard to keep your equipment in because you were at an edge of a network, that would be a good example of something where you know you could perhaps add value. Indeed, indeed, and, and and touching back on IPFS, this is a good good uh, way to just sort of jump back to the the notion uh, the term we mentioned at the start, IPFS, the interplanetary file system. So IPFS, which has been around for about eight years, Filecoin has been around for about two years or so, the Filecoin network. So IPFS is a related decentralized storage network, and it was one that Protocol Labs originally created, but that doesn't have this crypto economic model. So it is it is decentralized, but you effectively, you need to somehow pay storage providers to what's called pin the data on the, on the node, otherwise it'll effectively be garbage collected. But the interplanetary is not just a, you know, a cute name. The whole idea of IPFS and in turn Filecoin is that data is stored and, and addressed via a content addressing scheme, a CID. So not a location-based addressing scheme. So you're used to in your web browser going to www.whatever.com slash something, something, something slash, you know, report.pdf. And that is the location of that annual report or whatever it might be. Well, within IPFS and Filecoin, it's referenced by a content identifier, a CID, which is actually a cryptographic hash of that data. So what that means is one, the data can't change, or at least you will know if the data has changed because suddenly the address and the, the data you're served no longer match. But it also makes things like caching very much easier because if you ask for that address, you know exactly what the data is. You know that the data at that address can't change. So that solves one of the biggest problems with caching, and that's you know to do with cache invalidation and you know in, in cache integrity and all that kind of stuff. So the interplanetary file system, the idea was that you would be able to you know if if you were actually on Mars and you're trying to retrieve some data, that there might be a cached copy on Mars and you don't have to fetch it round trip from the planet Earth. And what's what's interesting is actually there's an IPFS node going up on a spaceship, I believe later on, I think it's later this year, you know, there's actually been agreed, I think it's Lockheed Martin on one of their testbed um, satellites, right? they are actually sending an IPFS node up into space. So this is, you know, like I said, it's not just a cute name, Excellent. It's, uh, it's, it's actually a, a yeah. real thing that's happening. Totally, um, a real, real world or real out of this world almost. Yes. In, for, in terms of it actually existing. Yeah, fantastic. So talking about customers then, end users what's the what are the typical users of this sort of platform are you seeing it's third-party providers who are building other services is it large organizations who are sort of deciding do you know what i need a i need a place to keep a, a third copy what's the sort of usual use case i guess there's a lot of them and sometimes it's a little difficult to say being decentralized in and of itself means you don't necessarily know how right. and, and who is is using it 
But I mean, some examples, we've got some large public data sets that are being stored on there by research organizations. So uh, the Encyclopedia DNA Elements, which is you know, 2.6 petabytes of data. There's uh, Folding at Home, the COVID-19 data set is stored on there. Various genome data sets, things like that, that are stored on there that are all sort of multi-petabyte data sets being stored on the network as a public good. And uh, kind of this, I suppose, a good point to touch on kind of Filecoin's and, and Protocol Lab's kind of three-point sort of mission plan. The, the first step is build the world's largest decentralized storage network. Well, that's you know, been done and, and, and being, you know, further built on the tick. Yeah, exactly. The second thing <laughs> is, is store all of humanity's data, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide storage for, you know, data within humanity because we're living in a more and more data centric world, right? So the availability of data is a significant thing. And then the third point is to provide compute services to that data. And that's kind of where compute over data, uh, FEM, that's where they kind of fit in. And that's the kind of the stage that we're at at the moment is providing these additional kind of useful compute services to make use of the data that is stored there. So, uh, you know, at the moment, like I said, there's a lot that are being stored there from like an archival point of view, but also going right the way at, at the other end. So there's a storage helper called nft.storage, and that is used by most of the large big NFT storage marketplaces. So for example, in you know the, the cryptocurrency world and blockchain world, NFTs, these uh, non-fungible tokens that people are using at the moment, they're often used a lot for like little bits of artwork, but they're finding more and more other use cases as well. Those, you know, most of the large NFT marketplaces are actually storing their data on, you know, backed up to Filecoin as well. Because the, the verifiability of the data, the content ID, maps very nicely into the concept of an NFT. Because an NFT is a basically a smart contract on a blockchain that, that proves you own something. And then using uh, IPFS and Filecoin, you can actually reference the actual asset itself in an immutable way. So you can be sure that the, the actual asset that this effectively digital you know, title deed is pointing to is indeed the, the, the one that you think it is. I think there's a million and one scenarios where you could see this could be useful. So I could see vendors like Backblaze or anybody, Cloudflare, for example, who already are starting to bring in their own object storage type solutions, mm. having something like this as the backing store for all of that so that they've got the front end CDN and they cache it and they do all that management. But also there's a whole discussion here around somebody could set up a really, really interesting immutable ransomware protecting solution that absolutely guarantees that once that data has been validated and checked and placed on, on that platform, somebody can't change it. So, you know, as a, as a ransomware defense, you can immediately see an opportunity there to build a service that is backed by something with that degree of immutability into it, because it literally can't be changed unless you hack the system. And even if you hack the system, you're not going to be able to change it. It's just no, exactly, you know, exactly. And by design. Yeah, exactly. By design, that works really well for any application where, you know, you need to be insured of the integrity of the data. So there was a, I can't remember which conflict zone it was in, but uh, recently in one of the conflict zones, there was, uh, you know, a reportage company that are taking videos and taking photos and writing up reports of what's happening in that conflict zone. They're storing that data on Filecoin with a view that, you know, it might be at 10 years time that that data is that that information is then called upon in, say, you know, a war tribunal case or something like that, you know, some, uh, you know, court of human rights. And they need to be able to go back and say, well, yes, that data that we stored 10 years ago hasn't been tampered with. And that is exactly a faithful record of, you know, what was recorded at the time. So something like that. 
uh, you can imagine legal professions, anything like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, but even things like you know data scientists. So quite often you'll see a a scientific paper and it says, okay, here's my methodology, and maybe there might be a link to say GitHub and say their their code with their algorithm in. You could go and run it, but have you got the actual data? So you know, it's it's great that they say, well, here's my algorithm. It's like, well, that's great, but I don't have the source data that you ran the algorithm on. Because you know that can't just be uploaded to say GitHub because that might be gigabytes or terabytes or petabytes in size, so that actual data could be stored on Filecoin, and then again you get this content identifier, this hash that can be put in your paper, and so that you know if you're reading that paper and you see that hash and you fetch that hash from Filecoin, that is guaranteed to be the data that was uploaded there by the original author of that paper. So you can then have a much higher certainty if you were trying to replicate their results. You're looking at the same thing that they were looking at. Uh, when they when they uploaded it, it sounds like that there are a lot more use cases and things to think about in terms of how this date this platform could be used, other than just thinking about it as a distributed storage platform. I mean, I may, there's many more to it, and I think if there's anything that I'm taking away from this is the use cases around that that people could be doing and where this could be slotted into so many other solutions out there that are many and varied to the extent that everybody should be thinking, how can I use this sort of technology in my business, you know, in terms of storing my data? Yeah, and that's 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 where FBM, the Filecoin virtual machine really comes in, right? Because mm. that allows that programmability right. to build those use cases on. And so that's currently at a, on a test net at the moment. And we'll be going on to the main Filecoin, uh, the main net Filecoin blockchain middle of next month. So that's going to really open those possibilities up. We just ran a hackathon, part of a, a, a project uh, we have called Space Warp. And we ran a hackathon there and we had, um, I think it was, one, it was over 1,000 participants to the hackathon over a three-week space submitting something, I can't remember, it was about 250 different projects that were submitted that were created within that three-week space for people who had ideas as to what they wanted to build on top of this blockchain. So that was fascinating, seeing some of the, the different use cases that people had come up with. Excellent. So if people want to learn more about that and generally learn more about Filecon as well, where should we push them towards, Matt? Uh, so if you want to find out about the um, the... Uh, events that are going on around the launch of FEM. Uh, the best place is the Spacewarp website, which is spacewarp.fem.dev. And if you want to find out about Filecoin more specifically, uh, filecoin.io is the main website. Um, and there's a number of other websites related as well. So if you wanted to become a storage provider, for example, uh, there's a website, SP, for storage provider, sp.filecoin.io. That has a lot of the um, information about sort of becoming a storage provider on the network as well. And fem.filecoin.io is the is the home for the Filecoin virtual machine and uh, shows the roadmap of that and all the functionality of that. Fantastic. In terms of what we've managed to get through in, in 40 minutes, it's amazing. Obviously, I don't want to overwhelm people with some of the detail we put in there. And, you know, maybe this is something we go back and re revisit again in the future. But as an introduction, that was amazing just to understand the the sort of the background and where this technology to, could go so i'll put all of those things into the show notes i'll make sure everybody's got links to all of that and let's you know let's put a, a note in the diary to come back and have a discussion you know in a sh another six 12 months and find out where things are because i think this seems to be like a technology that's got a massive amount of momentum coming 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, it was great, great to uh, chat to you, Chris. And yes, if we come back and revisit in six months, because like I said, FEM will be live. I think there'll be a whole load of other use cases that people have built on, you know, stuff that, you know, we've not even thought of. That's that's the beauty of it, right? People can build whatever they want on top of the network. And uh, so it'll be great to see where we are in six months time. The growth of the network, the growth of use cases um, will be uh, really interesting to see. Great, Matt. Thanks for your time. Thanks for uh, joining me and uh, catch up soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Chris. You've been listening to Storage Unpacked. For show notes and more, subscribe at storageunpacked.com. Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked Podcast. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.